Hello and welcome to the LARB Radio Hour, brought to you by Reader Supported, LA Review of Books. I'm your host, Eric Newman, the Gender and Sexuality Editor at LARB. And with me today in the studio are Editor-at-Large Kate Wolf and Managing Editor Medea Ocher. Hi. <laughs> Hi, Eric. Hi. Hi. <laughs> okay, today in anticipation of next week's Oscar nominations announcement, uh, which will happen on Tuesday, We've come through our archives to bring you back to our interview with Tim Wardle, director of the documentary Three Identical Strangers. We love that conversation just as we love Tim's film, uh, which looks at the unbelievable rip-from-the-headlines tale of three identical twins adopted by three different families, only to discover their connection by chance later in life. What starts out as a tale of incredible and joyous reunion takes a series of increasingly darker turns as the twins learn that they and their families are at the heart of a psychological experiment that begs deep questions about scientific ethics and responsibility. Now, while we feel fairly certain that Wardle will get a nomination for the film, as we do for other frontrunners, including Sandy Tan Shirkers, Morgan Neville's Won't You Be My Neighbor, and Bing Lu's Minding the Gap, and I should mention, kudos to us, we have actually have shows and interviews with all three of those directors, we felt that it was a good time to take a look back at the show. But to have some fun before we get back to that interview... Medea and Kate, let's talk about some predictions for the nominations. Any hopes, dreams, or revenge plots? Kate, you go first. This was a rough year for Kate. She didn't <laughs> oh, yeah, see yeah, that yeah, many movies. I saw Kate. a star is born. She'd, okay, so actually that brings us to, let's talk about Best Picture. Because A Star is Born definitely will get a nomination. Oh, yeah. 100%. Personally, I hope that it's not going to win just because I felt that there were some way better films. I know you really loved Roma. I really loved Roma, though. Larb recently published a a takedown of that movie that was pretty brutal. Oh, what was the issue with it? Well, the issue that the writer took was that the representation of the working class was not, in fact, as generous as it could have been, nor Mm. as Mm. insightful as it could have been. I actually, not to slight one of our own writers, I actually think he's wrong, but that is just another opinion. I hear Richard Brody from The New Yorker also felt similarly. So there's uh, a tide against Roma at the moment. I still, nonetheless, I feel that Roma would definitely get a nomination because the Academy loves nothing more than a movie that just drips with quote-unquote film quality. And that movie has it in spades. Definitely, and it's in black and white. Yeah. So Lots it's almost like the artist, but shots. not as quiet. Right, <laughs> not as quiet. I don't know if you guys saw both of these films, but the other ones, especially since it won at the Golden Globes, I think Bohemian Rhapsody is probably in the mix. I love that movie. Interesting. Maybe not the most queer take on Freddie Mercury, but still fun to watch. And The Favorite is another one. I don't know if you've seen that yet, but it is. I have, speaking of queer. It's so good. Very (laughs) queer. You've seen it? I have seen it. And that movie is pretty fun. It also was fun trying to sort of regather the scraps of English history that I have learned <laughs> yes, over the, the past, whatever, 30 years, and realizing I truly actually had no idea <laughs> what monarch followed which other monarch. And usually I take the stance with my husband where I pretend to know everything and I, and I don't budge, even when I clearly know absolutely nothing. Um, <laughs> and so I very confidently explained that King Charles had had his head chopped off but then his son king james was none of that is correct i don't i think (laughs) i felt this way by the way when i saw mary queen of scots um which was uh, good it won't be in this year's nominations just because of the timing but it is like totally crazy that movie and and yeah lots of wikipedia immediately afterwards yeah because i 
I truly couldn't remember a thing. But that movie is a lot of fun. Yeah, totally fun. And, and Rachel Weiss is quite beautiful. Amazing. And, and just an eye patch. It's just a joy mm. to watch. It's a joy to watch. And a friend texted me the other day saying that she wanted to be friends with Emma Stone. So that is that a makes sense. plot we're hatching, I guess. Speaking actually of actresses, what do you think about best actress? I'm hoping for another Glenn Closeout. I was going to say, we know who you're rooting for. <laughs> I know, I know. And I'm two for two, by the way, because you saw that she won, shared ugh, the award with Lady Gaga. Yeah. Which I should say, I know that a lot of listeners are probably going to hate this, but it's like, I don't want Lady Gaga to win. Because I respect her work. I respect her music. I think she's incredible. But I think the reason there's any buzz around that role at all was because the expectations were so low for her. Ouch. I, wow. I, especially when you look at the field. I mean, look at like Claire Foy, for example, in First Man. should definitely get a nomination. Incredible performance. She was also good in Girl with the Dragon Tattoo 2 or whatever it was, The Spider's Web. But that should not get anything because it was a terrible movie. Okay, okay. So what do you guys think for best actor? Bradley Cooper. Bradley Cooper, obviously. Pink with his beard. Also great, a great performance. When I compare it, though, to like Rami Malek, is it really that interesting of a performance? Like Rami Malek really owned Freddie Mercury, his inhabitation Mm -hmm. of Freddie Mercury in a way that I think was unique and interesting. Also, don't underestimate Christian Bale, right? People love hot guys in old dude makeup. You You guys, were you shocked at his accent? No. (laughs) Really? I knew that he had an accent. But that accent is like... It's thicker than I would have thought. It is truly thicker than I would... And he sounds like a chimney sweep (laughs) from the 1920s. What... Where is that man from? He's a time traveler? (laughs) It's amazing. (laughs) He walked off of the old set of Mary Poppins. He really... I was was He's a Scot. Is he? He, uh, A Welsh? A Welshman. Nice. I know. I, I looked it up. Because I truly was confounded. So Welsh. He it's is, a Welsh accent. Yeah, he's Welsh. Have you ever read Evelyn Waugh and his representation of Welsh people? You know, I've never read Evelyn Waugh. Okay, which that's a I'm, mistake. Yeah, I'm sad about it and I will correct that this year. But and right. I think it's a handful of dust. There's a there's a group of Welshmen that just suddenly enter the, the novel and it's hilarious because they just cannot be understood by any of the other characters. And it's just a it's just gibberish for pages and pages. It's very funny. <laughs> It does sound good. Probably wasn't funny to the Welsh people. It probably, <laughs> it. probably not. I enjoyed it. Insulting them for about yeah. 20 minutes now. <laughs> okay, well, before we get to Tim Wardle's um, interview about Three Identical Strangers, let's actually talk about those other documentaries that we looked at and which are sure to get nominations. The two of you interviewed Sandy Tan for Shirkers. Do you want to talk about that a little bit? That was a great, beautiful film that I loved. I'm sure it will get nominated. Will it win? I don't know. It's kind of risky. It's, it's a different it's, kind of story. It's a little hybrid story. I don't yeah. think that for documentaries, that's probably not up the Academy's alley, but maybe. That'd that's be exciting true. if it won. And it's more like creative and inventive as like a documentary film, right? right? The way that it's like put together. Yeah, we should say that that documentary is about, partly about the making of her own movie, of Cindy Tan's own movie yeah. in Singapore when she was a teenager. Uh, a teenager, yeah. That was lost. So that's the hybridity there that Kate is referring yeah. to. Especially in a year like this and a year like what 2018 was, would not surprise me if we see lots of buzz around Morgan Neville's Won't You Be My yeah. Neighbor, the Mr. Rogers documentary. Just because I, I think we all felt this when we saw it, that it's like we miss that kind of kindness and like generosity that Fred Rogers embodies in our contemporary moment. 
That was actually you guys, I think, who did that interview, right? Yeah, 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 it was Kate and I. And I remember, this may sound somewhat unfair, but I remember sort of choosing to had other responsibilities, but I didn't feel a pressing need to be there because I had no connection to Mr. Rogers as a child. Only watched him once I was, you know, probably a older than the target age, once after we had moved to America and I finally had a TV. We had a TV in the Soviet Union too, but it only showed Gorbachev. Um, <laughs> but I watched the documentary anyway and was so sad that I didn't join you because it was truly so lovely. Oh, it's so great. Yeah, it's a, it's a really great, it's a great movie about a truly lovely man. And what about Mind the Gap? Minding oh, the Gap? Minding the Gap, being oh, Lou. Yeah. yeah, that was an interview that I did with the director. And that movie is interesting. I will say it's a first documentary. So I think that is itself risky because they might give it to somebody that's more established. But I think that it's fascinating. It's about skate culture. It's about masculinity. It's about transgenerational trauma. Like there's lots of things that I think are compelling. And he tells those stories in a place, um, which is uh, Rockford, Illinois, that is utterly unique and also utterly relatable. So I think there's lots of stickiness for that film. Yeah, and we should say to listeners, you can go back into iTunes, go to the LA Review of Books radio show, and Mm -hmm. you can listen to all those interviews and get prepared for those Tuesday announcements. nominations, exactly. Okay, so while listeners will have to tune in next week to see if we were right, for now, they can tune in to listen to our conversation with Tim Wardle, director of Three Identical Strangers. We're excited to be speaking with director Tim Wardle. Tim is a BAFTA-nominated documentary director whose work has appeared on TV and film. In addition to his documentary work for outlets including CNN Films, Channel 4, and the Sundance Institute, he has also steered development for a number of production companies in the UK. His latest film, the documentary Three Identical Strangers, follows the bizarre and extremely difficult story of three identical twins separated at birth who find one another in 1980s New York. The ensuing tale moves from the giddy ecstasy of the triplets' reunion to the dark story of their separation, asking audiences to grapple with some of the most fundamental questions of human development and scientific ethics. Welcome to the show, Tim. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Okay, so can you just give our listeners a brief synopsis of what is happening in the film without revealing too many spoilers, some of which we may get into? Right. We can say outright that this movie is shocking in turns, surprising. Yes. But let's start with the premise. The film follows three identical brothers, triplets, separated at birth and raised by different families, completely unaware that the other boy's existence. They meet completely by coincidence in New York in 1980 at the age of 19, become famous, you know, on the front page of every newspaper pretty much in the world. And the film kind of explores what happens next, but also goes back in time to explore the reasons for their separation and the people who did it and uncovers a number of dark secrets. Tim, what brought you to the story? Someone brought the story into a production company that I was working at. And in that job, I was the head of development. I'm the ideas guy. So, you know, I see hundreds of ideas every week and you get very jaded very quickly and you think Mm. you've seen everything. But you know, this one came in and instantly I realized this was the single best idea I'd ever come across my desk. And 
it just works on a human level. There's a great human story of these brothers separated and reunited, but it also has these much bigger themes of family, free will, destiny, nature versus nurture. And I was hooked right away. Now, Tim, did you know all of the various turns by the time you saw that pitch in production? Or were there things that you were discovering continually along the way as you produced the documentary? We knew about 50 to 60% of the kind of backstory, but there was a lot that we, we didn't know the third act. And that was a huge issue in the UK, getting funding. People said, how's this going to end? Yeah. You know, and, and and I kept saying, well, it's a documentary. Sometimes in documentaries, you don't know how things are going to end. And my background is really as a kind of observational, verite kind of filmmaker. And I'm used to that. But because the rest of the film is so easily mapped out, because we did know these various twists, it was really um, scary, I guess, to our funders to kind of push ahead with it. You know, one of the other things that just to start at the beginning of the film, because what's so amazing is the kind of ecstasy of them finding one another, these kind of three identical triplets who had been separated at birth. And I'm interested in kind of how the film thinks about both cultural fascination with clones and twins and triplets, right? The kind of uncanny, we're seeing two things that are separate but look the same, which seemed to me to be a big part of why they kind of catapulted to media fame, appearing on many news shows of the day, and then eventually also getting famous enough to have their own restaurant in New York. So is there also some kind of cultural fascination with the very idea of identical twins or triplets? I think absolutely there is a stretching back millennia, you know, back to Romulus and Remus. Twins and identicals pop up again and again in in literature. You know, the idea of the doppelganger in some cultures, it's a kind of hairbringer of doom. Lawrence Wright, the journalist who appears in the film, has written a book called Twins and What They Tell Us About Ourselves. Mm. And his book is very much looks at this sort of cultural obsession. And, you know, there are some tribes in the world where twins born are venerated and others where they are killed or one of the twins is killed at birth because they're considered bad luck. Mm. So I think there has long been this fascination. I don't know if it's because there's some kind of deep-seated, unconscious almost realisation that they illustrate this kind of nature-nurture, free-will, destiny kind of battle that we all kind of face in our lives and they're the most sort of pure and perfect illustration of it. And certainly throughout science, they've been used and abused repeatedly for experiments. Is that something that you were aware of when you went into the story, the various ways in which twins had been subject to study and research? Uh, I was just purely because I studied psychology at university and twins studies are kind of one of the mainstays of kind of psychological research. I mean, it's changing these days. And I certainly was aware of the Nazi experimentation with Mengele at Auschwitz. So but it stretches back, you know, way before then. They've been used to justify all kinds of different things from eugenics to, yeah, sort of classism in Britain, I think in the sort of 18th century. Again, Larry Wright's book is really, really good reading on that. There's also, at least in this first part of the film that we're talking about, which is the happiest part, I think, when they discover one another, there's all of these things that fascinate me in terms of the expectation that we have from blood relatives, right? That it's like you're going to feel this sudden sense of, you know, quote-unquote actual connection um, with somebody, that there's this cultural fascination with or deep investment in the idea that, well, if I'm related to you by blood, then we share some kind of special connection, which has always actually felt totally nuts to me. Like, I know enough people that people that they are closest with are actually not blood relatives. In fact, they feel they have zero in common with blood relatives. But I'm really interested in how the triplets navigated that 
type of fantasy. I mean, absolutely, the heart of this film is a kind of meditation on what family is and whether yeah. it's about biology and genetics or whether it's not to want to sound too cheesy, but about love ultimately and more about who loves you rather than who you're biologically related to. I think what's fascinating about that early period you describe, which is best characterized as kind of joyful, literally everyone we spoke to used that adjective to describe it and it was infectious. I think what's fascinating is that the trips themselves were kind of playing along to a certain extent i think and they were playing up their similarities you know one of them says we wanted to be alike we were falling in love with each other and sort of references that thing you do when you when anyone starts a relationship with someone and you really like them you find all the ways in which you're similar and you kind of ignore the ways that you're different and i think they were sort of complicit in that media portrayal of them the media and all of us wanted them to be identical but they wanted to be identical as well yeah So the movie begins with one of the triplets sitting down in front of the camera and just sort of starting to tell the story. And while I was watching it, I was like, well, lucky for the director, he's great at telling the story. (laughs) He's very good at it. He also must have done it a lot. But something that I was thinking about in terms of how you had approached this is there was already, as you said, a media narrative there, right? There was something that these at first children, essentially, I mean, they were 19 young men, that there was already cameras that told the story in a particular way, that these young people were used to framing a narrative in a particular way. And that can be really detrimental to somebody who is looking for the truth, right? Because what you don't want is a rehearsed sort of understanding of this particular tale. Were you worried about that? Did you go in sort of being a little wary of the media narrative that had already been built and maybe the way that these people had already narrativized their lives? I was wary of it, but I'd say a central part of the film actually is it is about the nature of storytelling in one respect. You know, in that opening part that you mentioned, the opening 10 minutes, I think about people use the word story about eight times or something like that it comes up again and again and again and i think it's fascinating that the actually the journalist howard schneider who appears in there is a newsday editor who's the first kind of big newspaper guy to really pick up the story and report it he actually teaches it he teaches journalism today and he uses this as an example to his students of what he calls the kind of unknowability of narrative he says in journalism truth is provisional you only know what you've got on any one day mm. and for him this story is the ultimate example of a story that everyone thought they knew what it was and it was a you know feel-good human interest story and it changed into something completely different he's well aware of the kind of flaws they had in kind of reporting it in terms of my concerns i guess my biggest concern was that they would be incredibly rehearsed. They have told this story a lot before, but those fears proved surprisingly unfounded, mainly, I think, because they hadn't told it for quite a long time. But also they have this incredible ability to tap back into the emotion of what they were feeling at different points in time. You know, when, when you're directing a film like this, as a documentary maker, you're not just looking for narrative fidelity. That's fine and dandy and you need that. What you're looking for is a kind of emotional truth. If people aren't prepared to go there or tap back into those feelings they have, then the story is always going to be flat. And these guys and their friends just had this amazing willingness and ability to go back to it and tell it with the emotion that it had at the time. And it really surprised me because I didn't I was really worried about that. I didn't expect them to be able to tap into those emotions quite as easily as they were. Okay, so then as we move out of this like very sparkly and happy and joyous part, We then kind of find out, and again, we won't reveal too much, but that effectively it wasn't just kismet that they had been separated, right? That in fact, this was 
highly planned. It was part of an experiment that was housed in conjunction with the adoption agency. The nature of that experiment we may get into later. But then they have all of these memories. So I'm interested in it from a pacing perspective in terms of how you let the documentary flow, like how you unveiled certain information. Because it does feel like sometimes when they're talking about the memories of researchers who would come to their house and interview them at various, every year, or sometimes I guess multiple times a year, like through various stages of their life, they have these memories like, oh, yeah, and these people kept coming and it always made me upset or I didn't understand why it was going on. Can you talk about how you navigated those moments in terms of pacing the documentary? Sure. I mean, broadly speaking, what I was trying to do was have the audience discover events as they were discovered by the triplets. So you've got a forced perspective. You're with their perspective rather than having a kind of omniscient view which you might have in other films information is being revealed to you as the audience as it was revealed to them in the past and the pacing of it i'm really proud of the editor michael hart is his first feature as well as mine and i think he did a fantastic job just in terms of this kind of seeding information that we now know you know the triplets and their families didn't realize was important at the time seeding it in the early parts of the film and then it starts Mm -hmm. to sort of detonate later in the story the triplets when they first met of course the families did compare notes and go we're all part of this study because they were told that it was a normal study of adopted children none of the adoptive families knew that there were other their their son had another any siblings at all but i don't think they ever put it all together to be honest i mean as david says in the film we didn't recognize this stuff until it was put in our face until it was in newsprint you know because they were partly because i think they were distracted by the media attention and the spotlight and they were just enjoying being together and they sort of said you know we we almost didn't care why we'd been separated at first we were just too busy catching up what was your relationship with these triplets? What was it, it, was, was it like to work with them? It was, at times, very difficult. It took about four years in development, winning their trust, getting them on side. And even during production, I sometimes wasn't sure if they were going to pull out. We definitely had moments where things felt like they were going to fall apart. On the other hand, as I've said before, they were incredibly open and honest with me. And when they did sit down for interview, they gave everything, which is all you can ask as a documentary director. And... Over the course of making the film, I came to realize just how badly they've been let down by various people in their lives and why it's actually completely normal for them to be very suspicious of the media and anyone, to be honest, promising Mm. they're going to do something for them. So the really surprising thing at the end of the film, when I showed them it, I showed them it separately and both of them had the same reaction. They liked the film, which was fantastic, but also there was this really strong emotional reaction which was like you did what you said you were going to do. And and I kind of realized they haven't had that very often in their lives. I think a lot of people have let them down. So it was that was fascinating to see. And I ended up today, I mean, I consider them and their families really close friends now. And I think we'll be in touch for the rest of our lives. Were you worried about betraying them in that sense? At the heart of the film, there's a kind of ethical question. There's an ethical mm. betrayal probably that takes place. And the relationship between the people in the film who separated the brothers and the relationship between a filmmaker and their subjects there's kind of a parallel there i mean you have a huge responsibility when you sit down with a camera and put it on people they will tell you pretty much anything and there's a huge responsibility there and we had to constantly check ourselves myself and the producer you know we sometimes we'd leave the interviews and we'd be like high-fiving like wow what an amazing story this is incredible and then we'd we'd sort of get in the car and we'd sort of slowly kind of 
there'd be a bit of a come down and we go, actually, this isn't just a crazy story. This is these guys' lives, you know, and this yeah. has really traumatized them. So I think we're really cognizant throughout the process that we had to be aware of the power we had and that we would use it ethically as filmmakers. You are listening to the LARB Radio Hour, recorded at Emerson College in the heart of Hollywood. You've been listening to our conversation with Tim Wardle, director of Three Identical Strangers. We will return to that conversation in just a moment, but first, we have this week's book recommendation. So, we have Julietta Singh in the studio with us today. Julietta is the author of No Archive Will Restore You. I keep wanting to say No Archive Will Save You, but it will restore you. And Julietta is here to recommend a book. What book are you going to recommend today? I'm going to recommend Jack Halberstam's book, The Queer Art of Failure. Okay, tell us about that book. It's an amazing book that mostly riffs on Pixar films and offers a series of readings of children's films like Finding Nemo, etc. And it looks to these films and the questions of animation, the movement away of the Pixar collective away from Disney films, to look at how embedded in these films are messages about what Jack would call queer collectivities, and to look at social formations that become possible through children's stories that depict failure as a kind of radically promising event. And so we're trained to constantly think about ourselves as desiring upward mobility of gathering together toward forms of conventional success. And Jack is looking at the ways in which failure might actually become the most promising way of being together, of gathering as collectives, of imagining a future that isn't so hinged on extractive capitalism, the destruction of the environment, the stamping out of quote-unquote minority communities. Could I ask you for an example? So what is an example of uh, a film that he talks about? So Finding Nemo Uh is one. And in Finding Nemo, he's looking at Dory, who's uh, very confused and forgets everything all the time, a kind of radical failure figure, and the kind of queer collective that ends up gathering at the end of the movie where Nemo's dad and Dory and Nemo gather together and become a kind of family without trying to correct her forgetfulness, without trying to move her into some other mode of being, but a kind of radical embrace of that confusion and that network that is kind of unconventional family unit. Has this book influenced what you show your daughter? Yes, although I had very limited television access as a child. And so one of my attempts with my daughter is to watch things with her. Like, for instance, we just watched Pocahontas a couple of nights ago. Uh And then to explain to her (laughs) at every step of the way how the representations are deeply problematic and misrepresenting history. (laughs) What was was her reaction to the explanations? Did she appreciate them? She gets it, you know? She lives with me day in and day out. So she's used to me. There's a lot of... I know, but <laughs> for instance, she's uh, she's really invested in becoming a high-heeled wearing femme when she grows up. 
against her mother's fashion sensibilities and aesthetics. And one of the things she said to me the other day was, you know, we were having a bath and she was like, I'm going to go to New York City by myself when I'm big and I'm going to buy some high heels. And I was like, well, that's cool, but let's talk a little bit about women's fashion. (laughs) And so we started talking about fashion and I was like, did you ever notice that men's fashion or boys' fashion is very comfortable and very practical in terms of movement and women's fashion tends to be constricting and uplifting in all the most uncomfortable ways? Mm -hmm. And she thought about it and she was sitting there in the bath and her face got kind of scrunched up and she was like, wow, that's not fair. That's not fair at all. And then she paused for a beat and said, but I still really like it. Oh, what a hero. (laughs) What a hero she is. (laughs) Um, Well, she sounds really fun. She's cool. But again, tell me the title of the book and the author. Jack Halberstam's The Queer Art of Failure. Thank you so much. Thank you. That was Julietta Singh, author of No Archive Will Restore You. Thank you, Julietta. Thank you. You are listening to the LARB Radio Hour. We now return to our conversation with Tim Wardle, director of Three Identical Strangers. As you said, Lawrence Wright, who's a journalist for The New Yorker and who wrote a book on twins, there's a few scenes in the movie where the camera is just with him as he's driving around and just speaking a little bit about this particular case. And it's funny to watch because he will say, well, this is why the story is so tantalizing. This is why I was so intrigued, right? And that keeps bumping up against footage of these grown men saying, we are not lab rats. Yeah. <laughs> right? Yeah. And so it, it's really interesting to see the, the layers of complicity and storytelling and who is involved I, I, look, in what. I, I, I think you're absolutely right. I mean, the, and that, that is a kind of balance and a dilemma right at the heart of the film. A few people have asked me about it. I think the reason that I feel really comfortable with it is because I know the brothers so well, having spent the last five years with them. And I know that they know their story is great and they think it's an entertaining story as well as well as being a tragic one and and everything else Mm. so when they wanted it done right they wanted the highs and the the excitement and the kind of wow factor of their story told Mm -hmm. um as well as the kind of you know the the stuff that had to be more sensitively handled so i kind of felt comfortable about that because I, i always knew that they'd approve of that and when they saw it they they did One thing that I want to try to draw a line between is that there's the kind of journalist or documentary ethics of like, I have a compelling story, but how do I also treat the subjects in their full humanity, which I think you do very well. Um, On the other side of that line is I think the more kind of scientific or research ethics um, that are at the heart of this film. And I was particularly struck by even before it the the darkness gets even darker early on maybe about midway through the movie where you interview and I am forgetting her name but the uh, the Natasha German the assistant researcher yes Natasha yeah yeah so when Natasha is saying you know look like we really didn't at the time think about any of the ethical implications of this study of basically studying three triplets and how they developed. We'll just leave it at that. Do you buy that in any way? Or are we really looking across the chasm of history and we just can't recreate what that ethical moment was like? 
Well, I think the first thing that's really important to say is Natasha herself was not part of the study. She was there when it was going on, but she wasn't actually actively involved in it. Mm. But I do think, I mean, look, I think historical context is important. I, I, I studied the you know, psychology of the the 50s and 60s, where this period where psychology is trying to establish itself as a legitimate science. And there are all kinds of experiments going on, like the Milgram obedience experiment right. mm-hmm. uh, right. and later the Stanford prison experiment, which but by today's standards, you would never, ever get past an ethics committee of a, in a psychology department anywhere in the world, I don't think. But, you know, Lawrence Wright said to me, it's kind of like the Wild West of psychology. And it kind of was. And there are these people pushing the envelope of what is possible and when that happens you always get ethical boundaries crossed i think so i I do think that's that's important i also think for me i'm I'm not trying to make a film about kind of goodies and baddies and black and white and good and evil Mm. i'm much more interested in kind of the gray areas of human behavior lawrence wright has this phrase noble cause corruption which he uses to explain you know why good people sometimes do bad things and I think, you know, it's, it, that that's a fascinating subject area to explore. I don't think the people who are running this experiment were in any way bad people. Peter Neubauer, the, the main scientist, was the founding father of child psychiatry in America and did a huge amount for young people in the, in America. And, and again, Natasha, the reason we show her at the start of her scene with all these liberal icons like the Obamas and all these people she's met is to kind of show these aren't kind of these people who are working at this place weren't evil Nazi type people, but it's, you know, people, opinions are divided. When I, when I, I, I say this in the, in Q and A's, the, the brothers are like, no, they were wrong. They knew what they were doing was wrong. They're bad people. And, and I have to respect that because that is, that is their lived experience. I'm less, I'd let, I'd be less um, black and white about it. One of the things that makes it historically murky, I think, and that sort of hangs above the the film is uh, and and some some of the people that you interviewed do bring this up explicitly, but it's the, it's the Holocaust, right? And as you said, like these, in fact, were Peter Neubauer escaped the Nazis. Mm-hmm. He was a refugee. He was, and all of the people involved in this particular event were Jewish. And it was a Jewish orphanage. And it was a, a Jewish right adoption agency, a yeah, Jewish uh, foundation that is now sort of keeping the the records, right? How did you manage that? I mean, that is that is very tricky territory to manage, right? Where it is, it is, yeah, it is. You're you're absolutely right, and and um, I'm not Jewish myself, but I, my wife is Jewish, and she finds watching the film unbelievably difficult yeah. because mm-hmm. of the legacy of the Holocaust and the, and this sort of. She says to me, Jewish people don't do this kind of thing to other Jewish people, especially because of the Holocaust and because of Mengele and all the the other you know historical injustices jewish people have have suffered i I suppose from my point of view i wanted to acknowledge it i thought that there is a central irony which is that david's family and neubauer's family both fled austria because the holocaust and they end up on either side of this experiment right and it's important to acknowledge that at the same time i wanted it to be a universal story uh, because i think i'm not i'm not personally convinced that the the fact that the, all the main people involved on, on all sides were Jewish is, is particularly relevant. I think it's an interesting footnote, and it makes, for many people, the ethics of what happened far worse. For me, it, it isn't a... You know, some people have suggested to me, well, maybe some, how unconsciously the, the, the um, traumas of the Holocaust were playing out in this experiment. I, that may be true. That, wasn't, that hasn't been my mm. reading of it. I very much see it as a universal story about family and destiny and love and those kind of things but uh, you know it was important to acknowledge that that context exists 
I also, um, in a similar kind of ethical terrain, but uh, perhaps a little bit broader, is how did your thinking change, if it changed at all over the course of making this movie, about the rights of adoptive parents and adopted children to know the conditions of their adoption, their backstory, who their biological parents are? Because that also is a very, very tricky thing. Um, so kind of how did you think about that before the film? Did the film in any ways change your perspective on that? I, I, I didn't think, I hadn't thought about it that much before the film. I guess making the film, it's just made me feel transparency is always going to be a good thing. You know, being transparent with adoptive families and and the children themselves just seems like the best policy. If you aren't, you're storing up all kinds of issues later on. You know, the reason that Louise Wise Services, the adoption agency, closed down, by my understanding, in the mid-90s is not because of this experiment. It's because they were routinely taking children from mothers who had serious psychiatric issues in, in psychiatric hospitals, in many cases, and then adopting them to um, middle-class families and not telling them that, about the psychiatric background. So, they and they would they would make up stories about the mothers and say, you know, she's a high-functioning, high-achieving college graduate who speaks five languages and plays the piano, which was all true. But what they didn't say is she's been in and out of psychiatric institutions her whole life and in some cases has been has been lobotomized. And so the kid, the teenagers would then develop, when the children would grow up, develop psych, psychological issues when they were teenagers and the parents hadn't had any information to help support them through that. And as a result, when they did get the information about these the birth parents, they would then sue the adoption agency. There's a very interesting moment at the end of the film and where you're speaking with the father of one of the triplets. And he he says something about, and just thought of this when you mentioned transparency being sort of the, the best possible policy, I guess, is that he, he says, well, we didn't talk about much. We protected each other. And yeah, that was really... I, I, sorry, go ahead. I'm so, I'm so glad you picked up on that line. I mean, for me, that's the most heartbreaking line in the entire film. You know, he says, we were a nice family. We didn't, we, didn't ta- we didn't talk about our problems much. We protected each other. It was a nice family. Yeah. And it I was really important. We, we, we were trying to cut things down and everything. And that was a line I really fought for because I think it gives you an insight into this guy. He's not a bad guy. He's just from a different generation. This is how he believes families are be- you know, operate best. And it was just unfortunate that his son that he adopted had a very different personality and different outlook and and way of being than than his more militaristic kind of way of way of the family unit being together and it's kind of it's kind of heartbreaking because he th- he thinks he's doing the right thing but he's actually not not really probably for the kid he had but he doesn't know it you know and it's that's it's so painful at the end he says you know maybe i didn't teach him something maybe i didn't teach him you know and it's um yeah it's heartbreaking yeah, that I I agree with you. I think that's, and I'm glad you kept that line because that that was really when the cruelty of the story I think hits, because it's the it's precisely this understanding of silence as a form of protection, and and that seems legitimate in some ways, right? That we do protect our 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 loved ones from the pain that is in the world, right? And we we try to keep that up as long as possible, and yet somehow in this particular scenario it's exactly the opposite right that that silence was not at all protective yeah yeah no absolutely it was it, it was in in that particular case it was the wrong thing to do and, and and maybe in some families 
it's the right thing to do. And that's, I guess, the, the, the terrible thing about being a parent. You never quite know what's right and what's not. Yeah. And in some ways, it seemed to also reflect that the, in, in the beginning, there's also a clip of maybe the woman who ran Louise, the agency. Um, yeah. And she says, well, we tell, the, we tell the family as much as is reasonable. Right. Yeah. Um, as much as they need to know, kind of thing. Right. And so she, she sort it, it, it's a similar kind of philosophy, right? About silence, where, oh, well, it's protective. We tell them as much as they need to know about the, the parent that has given birth to their child. You're absolutely, you're absolutely right. I mean, if, if you watch that video clip, as I have many times, it's, it's unbelievable the amount of tells she's, she's doing that, 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 that people think of traditionally as, as, signifying lying like she's touching her nose and she's kind of you know <laughs> won't, won't make eye contact and stuff it's really fascinating but yeah i mean that was their that was their line and they they stuck to it and you know just as we kind of like wind up here i'm wondering what was the most difficult part of producing this movie for you I think it was twofold. One was one was keeping the the brothers happy and on side and 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 getting them to take part in the first place. The second was dealing with these organisations that were connected to the study, in particular the Jewish Board of Family and Children's Services, who would only deal with us via a crisis management PR firm uh, mm. and would only deal with the brothers via a um, medical malpractice attorney. That had to be gutting, uh, not only for you but also for them. That it's like this is a thing very much about my life, and you're just handing me off to like a person that will just treat me like some kind of liability subject. I mean, I think it's the way that this this organisation has, has has operated the whole way through this. They've never taken ownership of their involvement with with this case, um, mm. and I think they just kept on hoping it would kind of go away. And you know, the the Jewish Board of Family and Children's Services, from what little I know, they they do a huge amount of good in New York. They get three hundred million a year as um, from government to run um, sort of social services um, uh, for, for for people in New York, and this just one thing from the past they've just handled incredibly badly over the years, and it's continued throughout um, the making of the film, and also because we knew that previous attempts to to tell this story had been shut down repeatedly. I don't know who by, well, we do know originally by Louise Wise and connections there, right. but later on, we don't know. We know of three attempts by major US networks to tell the story that, that got shut down. So it made for quite a paranoid atmosphere making the film because we were constantly convinced someone was going to shut us down or, or someone was going to, um, yeah, we were going to be sued or something like that. Mm. And what do you want audiences to take from the film? Because I know a lot of people are going to walk out of the theater or however they end up seeing it feeling kind of shell-shocked. You know, like, what? on the one hand, what did I just see? How do I think about these things? So kind of, how, what do you want audiences to do? Well, do is probably too active, but like, how do you want audiences to encounter the film? I just want people to... Talk, have talk. I want it to provoke discussion, and I want it to get people talking about the big themes that are discussed in the film: free will, destiny, nature versus nurture, um, the nature of family. Um, and if I can just do that, and there's a conversation that starts after the film finishes, I feel like I've done my job. Yeah, I mean, I I, I certainly can testify to um, a job very well done yeah. in that in that case. Thank you so much, Tim, for joining us. No problem at all. Lovely to talk to you. And congratulations on this excellent yeah, documentary. Yeah, it is really great. Thank you. Thank you so much. You've been listening to our conversation with Tim Wardle, director of Three Identical Strangers. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.
You've been listening to the LARB Radio Hour. Subscribe to our podcast in iTunes, SoundCloud, and Stitcher. If you like the show, leave us a comment and tell us what you think. The LARB Radio Hour's executive producers are Eric Newman, Medea Ocher, and Kate Wolf. Our engineer is William Broughton. Production assistance is provided by William Broughton, Eleanor Duke, Lauren Kinney, and Jake Levins. Our theme song is by composer Imogen Teasley. Special thanks to Alan Minsky, who is no one's moral conscience, for production assistance, and to Emerson College for the use of their studio in Hollywood. Tom Lutz is the publisher and editor-in-chief of the Los Angeles Review of Books.